What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, but my eyes, my eyes, my eyes are like a telescope. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're so glad to have Lauren back with us this time. Oh, thank you, Joe. Yeah, uh, I believe while I was out, you guys talked about telescopes. We did, but we didn't finish talking about them. That's right. So without you, Lauren, we recorded the first part of a podcast episode about telescopes. And today we're going to tackle part two. So what did we talk about last time? We, We sort of started with some musings about the history of telescopes yep. and what they mean to us. The fact that they're not just for creating images that are pleasing to the eye, but they're actually very important scientific instruments. They give us knowledge that's very useful for determining our place in the universe and learning things that we couldn't otherwise know. Yeah, like being able to confirm the fact that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Right. That was one of the that things. That was a good one. Yeah. 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 Pretty good. Well, I mean, 
there were a lot of different lines of evidence that eventually converged to disprove the geocentric model, sure. the idea that yeah. everything revolves around the Earth. But, but being able to see stuff in outer space certainly helped. Right. Yeah. So when Galileo looked through his telescope and saw moons orbiting Jupiter and saw the phases of Venus and things like that, that was some good evidence. Okay. Really, it seems like we're we're all going around the sun instead of it all going around us. And that trend has continued. So we saw how the Hubble telescope helped us uh, narrow down the age of the universe and how other telescopes have, have taught us all kinds of things about the our, our, our whole model of cosmology, the history of the universe, where mm-hmm. we all come from. Yep. And now we want to take where we've gone and project forward. Right. So we're looking into the future of telescopes. We're going to be talking about some telescopes that are uh, in various stages of being constructed. Some of them are just in the concept stage, haven't been built at all. Uh, some of them are space-bound telescopes. Some of them are here on Earth or will be here on Earth. Yeah, and I think, and hopefully y'all will agree with me, I think it is best to start with the good old James Webb Space Telescope because I think this is one of the coolest things going on in science today. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, this is uh, sort of the successor to the Hubble. Right, Right. it's Mm -hmm. the next generation space observatory. And it's really meant to, uh, to gaze further than the Hubble ever could and we all hope that uh, the the mirrors aboard the James Webb will be properly installed and properly formed. Because we talked in the last episode about how the Hubble famously had an aberration on its primary mirror. Which, a multi-billion dollar aberration. Yeah. 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 So we had to send up service missions to repair the Hubble telescope to get it working in proper order. But that might not be so much an option with the James Webb Space Telescope because, well, a couple reasons – Number the one, space shuttle program being being shelved is a big one. <laughs> That's one of them. The other one being that James Webb Space Telescope is not going to be easily accessible because it's not going to be in low Earth orbit. No, uh, this is a large infrared telescope with a 6.5 meter primary mirror, uh, and you know it's it's supposed to look at everything from the beginning of the universe up to present day, like to really look at not just how uh, how conditions were moments after the Big Bang, but how the universe evolved over time. How did galaxies form? How did how did stars form? Right. Because you have to remember when you use a telescope that can see as far as these space telescopes can you're essentially using some kind of visual time machine. Yeah, you're looking back in time. That's exactly right, because light only travels at a certain speed. Yeah, the speed of light, as it turns out. Exactly. So when you peer (laughs) across the galaxy, you're not seeing things happening in real time. Right. You're seeing the light that left those things as far away as they are, and it's taken all this time. For that light to reach us. Exactly, to cross the distance in between to reach you. Right. So the farther and farther you peer out into the universe, the further and further back you're seeing in time. Yeah, for example, I mean, if you were to look at the sun, don't. Don't look at the sun. Never look directly into the sun. But if you were, uh, you know how how far back that goes, right? About ten minutes. It's eight like that. eight minutes. Yeah. yeah, it takes about eight minutes for light from the sun to reach the Earth. So you are actually looking back in time by eight minutes. You're not looking at where the sun is now or how the sun appears now. You're looking at how the sun appeared eight minutes ago. So same sort of of idea, except you just extend it, and the further out you go, the further back in time you're looking. Yeah. So. 
the Hubble has been able to show us some really amazing ancient stuff, like early galaxies in the ultra-deep field. This stuff's really exciting. The James Webb Space Telescope is going to let us see even further back. Right, and it's it's the design is really neat. The primary mirror actually can, is segmented and can yeah, fold up. hexagonal segments. So the cool thing about it is that it can be folded for launch because obviously this is a very delicate uh, instrument. And mm-hmm. launch, I don't know if you guys know this, but if you uh, were to strap a lot of rocket fuel to your bottom and then push yourself up into space by lighting said rocket fuel, it's a bit of a bumpy ride. It's pretty hardcore. It's yeah. the most metal of all launches. It I is. Mean, it makes even astronauts puke. Yes. Astronauts <laughs> are the best people at not puking. Like, of all the people in a not puking contest, they would be at the top. They'd so, be the so, winners. So in the puking spectrum. They are trained. They are close to, to zero puke. Right. They're the least pukey, yeah. but sometimes even they puke. <laughs> Whereas babies would be way on the other end of that spectrum. Right. Yeah, they'd be high puking coefficient. Possibly only exceeded by the young girl in The Exorcist. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that's not her fault. She's possessed. I didn't. Well, I didn't say it was her fault. I was merely saying. Okay, but well, at any yes, rate, it yes. is a very bumpy ride. And telescopes, of course, the mirrors, the the huge mirrors that yeah. we use to create gigantic reflecting telescopes, uh, optical and infrared, like the James Webb is going to be, are very delicate. Yes. And the James Webb telescope will have four instruments aboard it. The near-infrared camera, or near-cam, the near-infrared spectrograph, or near-spec, the mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, and then finally, the fine guidance sensor slash near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph, or figus nearest. <laughs> Yeah, that one is that one does not go into acronym form very Figus easily. Nearest. I don't he know. was one of my favorite Roman emperors. Figus yeah. Nearest, yeah. yeah. Didn't he didn't he play fiddle while Rome just smoldered while the fig a little tree bit? Burned. Yeah. Well <laughs> So so what what ranges of, of light is this thing going to be detecting? From point six to twenty eight micrometers in wavelength. So uh point six, by the well, way. What does that mean? Those are just some numbers. So so a micrometer is uh is essentially one thousand uh nanometers. Yeah. Right? So if you look at the the spectrum of light and you look at the different wavelengths uh, and you look at 600 nanometers, that would be 0.6 micrometers. That's how far down uh, the in the visible spectrum the uh, the this will be able to look. And that that's somewhere in the orange slash red area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think of your Roy G. Biv, your longer wavelengths are on the Roy side. So it's not going to be able to see anything from yellow on. Okay. But red and orange, it will be able to look at as well as infrared. And keep in mind, we mentioned this in our previous episode when we talked about infrared telescopes. The data that we get from these, often we end up putting it through some sort of visualization software so that we add color that we can actually perceive. (laughs) Right, right, which is easier for us to look at. Yeah, we you see these uh, amazing gorgeous pictures of space like the the, the amazing nebula. Oh, right, right. Anything from a nebula or a supernova that you've ever seen has been a basically an artist's rendition yeah. of of figuring out what those wavelengths would be, sort of sort of scaling it. You know, mm-hmm. like if if you've ever done music and and you know how to how to scale octaves down or up, then right, right, it's right. similar. Though I do want to clarify based on artist's rendition, that doesn't just mean like a guess. I mean, oh, it is no, based no. on Oh, no, no. It's a very data. scientific 
process of guessing. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's essentially you you take you take the data you have and you extrapolate from it in order to get us a an image that we can perceive. I mean, uh, if, right, if you right. could see infrared, you uh, would sure. be able to tell already. And but. I'm just saying that the really pretty colors are specifically chosen yes. for reasons. I mean, in addition to being mathematically sound because they are really pretty. That is it's true. Both at the same time. That's true. Yeah, so we mentioned it's going to be looking at some of the earliest things in the universe. What does this really mean? So we're saying it's peering beyond where the Hubble's seen, beyond the ultra deep field, way, way back in time into, I guess, beyond the first billion years of the universe's existence, right? Way into the past. Right. What's it going to see? So you kind of need to know a little bit about the Big Bang Theory for this to make sense. But in uh, for a good long while... Uh, compared to what the time scale that we humans are used to. I mean, it's a blink of an eye in the galactic time scale, but a good long while. Uh, energy and matter were all kind of one thing. It, it was the universe was ex- extremely dense, so dense that light could not pass through it. Uh, then it eventually uh, expanded out. And once it expanded out and you started getting some uh, uh, cooling and you had uh, energy and mass separating out, you started to have the formation of stars and galaxies. And it's that first generation of stars that we're looking for with James Webb. Right? Yeah, we're really looking at more about the formation of the earliest galaxies. Yeah. But yes, uh, yeah, you know, that those would be, uh, of course, which contain stars. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> earliest stars. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> They weren't made of cotton candy. <laughs> so yeah, it's um <laughs> maybe we'll find out. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's the it's it's a really exciting idea. The idea of being able to get a a closer look at these conditions because a lot of this just exists right now in the realm of a hypothesis or theory where we have done the calculations and we know what we expect to find, but this will be the actual finding. Yeah. So that's always exciting because that it, whole testing hypotheses through observation. Exactly. Right. And yeah. it may turn out that we see things we didn't expect, which means we have to adjust what we believe, which is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what scientists uh, absolutely love, um, or at least I, I think the theoretical ones do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, OK. So so these mirrors that we're talking about, I mean, are, is it the same stuff that's in my bathroom mirror? What's no. what's up with these guys? No, 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 no. So the James Webb telescope. We mentioned it has interlocking hexagonal mirrors, and that's so it can sort of fold out of its cocoon like a butterfly when it reaches the place in space where it needs to be. Uh, but the mirrors are made out of beryllium. Okay. Like a, that stuff. I mean, you yeah. don't you don't want to go breathing a lot of beryllium dust. What? That's about all I knew about beryllium. Yeah, I, I I know nothing about beryllium. I have no practical. I, I keep okay. wanting to say beryllium sphere, but I'm almost certain I that was that's... in a Star Trek episode. Yeah, uh, it I reminds... think it's actually from what's that movie with uh, with uh, Tim Allen and Oh Galaxy Quest. Yes, <laughs> it always reminds me of Sailor Moon. So, oh, All right. okay. okay. Anyway. Well, let, let's 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 Sorry, talk about some actual science. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> why beryllium for the mirrors? Well. There are a lot of properties about beryllium that make it a really good idea to use it in these mirrors. Number one is very light and it's strong for its weight. Uh, but the telescope's mirror also has to hold its shape at the cryogenic temperatures in deep space. So this is going to be like a negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 240 degrees C. 
at these extreme temperatures, most materials are going to contract or change their volume. Which is bad news if you're talking about something that is going to allow you to get a look at uh, a distant universe. If the shape changes, then clearly that, that was like one of the issues with the Hubble. It wasn't right. that it wasn't that the mirror's shape changed, but because of that aberration, we didn't get those clear pictures we were mm-hmm. expecting. Yeah, yeah. And if you're if you don't remember from from last episode, the fraction by which it was off was like some some sliver of a human hair's width. Yeah. Of and yet it was 10 off. times beyond the accepted uh, <laughs> range of error. So yeah. we're talking about an incredibly thin margin of error here. Yeah. yeah. Creating these telescopes requires some really precision engineering. Yeah. 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 So, so if the stuff deforms, that would be bad. But beryllium wouldn't do that. Well, <laughs> it will deform because pretty much all materials will. Uh-huh. Uh, but beryllium holds up pretty well comparatively. It will still deform, so the project engineers, they were designing these mirrors, they had to test cool them to the temperatures that they'll experience in deep space. Mm -hmm. So they test them, they cool them down to those temperatures, record the magnitude of the changes, and then pre-correct for those temperature-based changes when polishing the mirrors in the final stages of design. Look at them thinking. Yeah. I I imagine they must have used... Liquid nitrogen will only get you down so cool. They must have had to use liquid helium to do that. I really don't know what they... I mean, I think they had to send them off to a separate facility for the cooling I imagine so. Your average freezer does not get down to minus 400 (laughs) degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, So anyway, what I'm trying to convey is that getting something like this to work is a marvel of modern science. It is a lot of work. Even the smartest people among us are having to do really hard work to make this work right. And I I think they deserve mega respect for what they're doing. Absolutely. And they're also, you know, one of the other things the James Webb Telescope's going to be looking for, we're going to be talking a lot about in this episode, which is that it's going to look for the physical and chemical properties of exoplanets. Yes. And the hope there is that we might be able to discover exoplanets that are either uh, already a habitat for life or could be a potential habitat some for point us. in the future. Yeah. yeah. So... It's not the only space telescope out there that's going to be doing this. Or even, I mean, there are some some terrestrial ones that are going to be looking for uh, planets that could potentially support life as well. One of the other ones is the Advanced Technology Large Aperture Space Telescope. Yeah, I've heard of this. So basically, this is a proposal that is for the farther future that goes even beyond the James Webb, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's an optical telescope, so we're still talking about looking for uh, light, whether it's... The visible spectrum. Yeah, yeah. well, or it could be infrared. I mean, yeah. you know, optical does not necessarily mean that it's not infrared, but it does. Uh, it isn't looking for radio signatures or, or x-rays mm-hmm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still in the design phase, and it's supposed to look for the presence of life, among other things, uh, on distant planets and and to remove all ambiguity about it. You know, we often hear about exoplanets being discovered. And then through analysis, we try to kind of determine what sort of chemicals might or might not be present on that planet. This is supposed to be a telescope that will be powerful enough for us to get those answers without us saying, well, it probably, maybe. Because, you know, a lot of those, upon further study, end up not panning out or uh, it turns out that we didn't have a, a, a good enough picture of what we were looking at. In some cases, we have exoplanets that, you know, quote unquote exoplanets that we have identified that have since disappeared, which may mean that the original detection was an aberration itself. So this is really meant to it's take hard to all that draw away. complex conclusions based on very limited data. Exactly. And it, it really does 
uh, hammer home the fact that we have to be careful about these kind of conclusions. And and for those of us in this room, we have to be careful when we're reporting upon it to make yeah. sure that we add that critical thinking layer and say, this is what it appears to be. But keep in mind that until we have further uh, observations, we cannot be sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that's just me trying to remind myself to <laughs> to practice good <laughs> uh, journalistic skills. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, so the acronym here is at last, which just makes me think of Ella Fitz- Fitzgerald songs. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But- in fact, that's all it's going to be playing deep in space. <laughs> so if you were if you were able to put your ear right up against it, you know, at last. <laughs> Don't no, sing the whole song. No, now. I'm not going to sing the whole song. You already made fun you of me. You got to go to the end. You made fun of me for singing uh, uh, Oh Susanna earlier. So, listeners, you need to know this. Jonathan Strickland knows the other stanzas to Oh Susanna. <laughs> <laughs> he knows the ones beyond the first. Not only is he a terrific podcaster. What you're, what you're telling them is that I know the verses, not just the chorus. <laughs> oh, yeah, that might be right. Anyway, that. That's beside the point. Let's yeah. talk about telescopes. Okay, well, all right. So, <laughs> so, w- so what's the last, deal with Atlas? Uh, well, it's another NASA project. It's through the Space Telescope Science Institute, which also does – it did run the Hubble program, and it's running the James Webb Space Telescope program mm. as well. Um, and like you guys said, it's still in the design stage. The, the hope is that it would be launching somewhere around like 2025 to 2035. So it, it's still pretty far out from the current day. Uh, and they're entertaining three different mirror types right now, um, aiming for less complexity and or mass than the Hubble and James Webb, but with better angular resolution and sensitivity. That's cool. Like as much as like like 2,000 times the sensitivity That's of amazing. the Hubble. So, so it would be able to detect much fainter bodies than yes. either the James Webb. That, that'll become important, too. We'll be talking about some telescopes that are going to be looking at looking for stuff that a lot of other telescopes will miss, but we really, really need to know about them. <laughs> uh, right, right. Yeah, you had a note in here about how it's going to be looking for, for biosignatures of life. like a, Yeah, it's like like things like molecular oxygen, water, and methane. That's you know, crazy. This that's is the so sort awesome. of stuff that, you know, again, we've, we've looked at like spectral analysis of, of exoplanets and said, oh, this might be methane on this planet, which would be a, a biosignature that would be an indication that there's some form of organic life there. Not right. necessarily necessarily uh, the only source of it. I, mean, I feel it, like I've heard that about oxygen. Yeah. So, I mean, b- because at least we know about Earth that Earth didn't have an oxygen atmosphere until it was created by, I believe it was Life. cyanobacteria. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then if you remember, uh, you know, we've we've had some close calls with detecting methane on uh, on nearby bodies uh, not that long ago that pan did not pan out for us. You, mm-hmm. you remember hearing about Mars and the supposed detection of methane. Did we bring it with us? Yes, we yeah. brought it with us. That was the problem. So now in the case with telescopes, <laughs> we don't have to worry about that because we're just looking. We're not actually sending a, a probe there that could potentially uh, end up uh, contaminating, contaminating the sample. Contaminating the sample, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, one interesting thing that I was reading about when I read about this that I hadn't particularly thought about before, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier about launching, Um so one of the things that the designers have to think about is how to get these giant suckers into space. Um, so two of their mirror concepts here are hypothetically compatible with another thing that doesn't exist yet, which is NASA's proposed space launch system or SLS. And um, the third, which I think is not really their favored design, mm-hmm. would be able to go up on one of the U.S. Air Force uh, Department of Defense evolved expandable launch vehicles like the the, the Delta IV and the Atlas V, which are currently in use. Yeah. So, and we may 
also see something like SpaceX step up and design either a vehicle specifically for these or modifying one of their existing designs to allow for this kind of thing. Because we're already seeing that sort of uh, uh, collaboration in getting astronauts to space. That was a pretty recent dis- uh, discussion where NASA said that a SpaceX capsule would soon be taking astronauts uh, up to the International Space Station, which is pretty exciting stuff. So we may see that as well. It's always kind of terrifying to me whenever I read about one of these really cool projects that is proposed and not yet developed that is going to depend upon another really cool project that is proposed yeah. but not yet developed. Because if one or the other falls through, then you don't have your project. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Right. I mean, just, you know, I... It just added another interesting layer of it to me, which I guess is, of course, if you really think about it, it's obvious. But, you know, sitting there and saying like, well, so what we're going to do with this extremely expensive, like billion dollar, highly precise mirror, we're going to strap a lot of rocket fuel to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then we're going to light a fire in the See, rocket it's fuel. It's sounding a lot like a Mythbusters episode right now. <laughs> <laughs> like we built this amazing thing. How do we blow it up? Uh, now, the next one I wanted to talk about. <laughs> no, I imagine they're saying, uh, just kidding, we're going to hand it over to the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good old Soyuz. Uh, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, uh, which I just like that acronym. So TESS is scheduled to launch in the near future and will perform a survey of the sky in search of habitable planets in the Goldilocks zone. So that's in that that zone of orbits that we believe would be uh, conducive to supporting life based upon what we know from our sample size of one planet that has life on it that yeah. we know of. Um, and then also just looking for exoplanets in general. So it will cover 400 times more area than the Kepler 37b telescope, which also is, is known for looking for exoplanets. OK, so this is sort of an exoplanet hunter that's designed to cast a wide net. Yes. Yeah, to really because, you know, we have we have ideas. Ideas of how many exoplanets must be out there based upon the information we've discovered from the ones we've seen, right? Yeah, we, we right now the guess that. is a lot. Yeah, like tons of them. And this would help us either verify that or refute that. And yeah. both of those would be important. So, oh, yeah. Exciting either way. Yep. And then we have the European Extremely Large Telescope. I added that because <laughs> I love that name. That's the, the, European, large. the European Extremely Large Telescope. It, makes, it sounds like something out of Douglas Adams, doesn't yeah, it? It makes the European <laughs> no, Large... It totally does. The European Large Telescope has got terrible envy of the Extremely <laughs> Large Telescope. Well, oh, even the... Vi- very inadequate. The European Very Large Telescope has got to feel a little threatened. Uh, it's, it's kind of feel a little bummed. Well, right now it's still doing pretty well because this is one that hasn't been built yet. No, this isn't. No, after this comes the European hilariously large <laughs> telescope. The ludicrously large telescope. Yeah. <laughs> when when you notice that the Earth's orbit has been slightly altered due to the presence of the telescope yeah. there. Well, this is actually an Earth-based telescope, right? Yeah. Which and- while. They suffer some disadvantages compared to space telescopes. Obviously, they have to deal with the atmosphere right. and things like that. But they also have advantages in that they're right here and we can work on them. Yeah. And they're yeah. easier to build and get in place. Right. We don't have to worry about space junk. Yeah. Encountering one. We don't. And if something does go wrong, like you say, we could have maintenance and repair there immediately as opposed to, well, now we have to plan a mission. We have to train people. We have to get them up into space and then we 
we have to figure out how to get them back down safely. I mean, that's a, anytime you're talking about any kind of space mission that's a maintenance issue, it's a huge endeavor. And of course it costs millions and millions of dollars. Not so much if you're doing a maintenance, uh, here on Earth. I mean, it I'm sure that's really probably expensive. still pretty expensive, but <laughs> comparatively. Not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things. But tell me about this one, Jonathan. So it's, it's optical and near infrared. So we're talking visible light to near infrared. And it'll have a 39 meter main mirror. That's big. So the the largest telescope in the world right now, we talked about it in the last episode, is the Gran Telescopio uh, uh, Canarias in Spain on the Canary Islands. And it has a 10.4 meter mirror. So this one will be a 39 meter mirror. So that's like almost four times. Yeah, it's enormous. So uh, it'll be searching for Earth-like planets in the habitable zones, just like uh, we were talking about with TESS, except it'll be doing it here on Earth. Uh, and it'll also be looking for... Uh, other, it'll also be doing other projects in astronomy and cosmology, including a search into the universe's past. So very similar to what we had talked about with James Webb. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be at the, let's see if I can get this, Cerro Armazones, a mountain in Chile. Is that Cerro or Cerro? I would think it was Cerro. Uh, it yeah. could be. It could be. Uh, you know, it, it, my, my, uh, my Latin languages are terrible. Uh, I'm more of a Germanic kind of guy. So uh, it'll be a lot of hilarity <laughs> with me trying to – hey, I'm just saying. No, that, okay. That's my, my no, I know li- you're linguistic old English. background. Let's yeah. go. Uh, so another <laughs> another enormous telescope planned for Chile is the Giant Magellan Telescope, uh, which is going to have a 24.5-meter primary mirror. Uh, and uh, although that mirror is actually going to be made up of seven 8.4-meter diameter segments, so it's another segmented mirror that t- collectively acts as one primary mirror. Mm-hmm. And while we're in Chile, how about we visit the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope? That's a uh, Do let's. Uh, yeah, because it's going to be awesome. It's got a 3.2-gigapixel camera. Whoa. Forget your megapixels. I don't even understand what that means, but okay. Yeah, well, I mean, I do, but that's just very, <laughs> that's beyond my personal conception of, yes, okay. This camera is going to scan the entire sky twice a week in panoramic shots. So you're going to get the entire view of the night sky from this perspective in Chile every, uh, twice a week. And um, it's going to help us make a really detailed sky map, which could potentially lead to billions of discoveries of new bodies from stars to asteroids. And according to uh, to one researcher who works on the project, it will be the first time that astronomers have cataloged more objects than there are living people on Earth. Wow. So uh, very exciting. Also, you know, being able to detect those asteroids, very important, uh, just as I was kind of alluding to that earlier in the podcast. But one of the things that a lot of people have brought to our attention is that, you know, Asteroids have a potential of colliding with Earth. We've heard about this kind of thing several times over the last few years. And uh, we don't have a whole lot of contingency plans for what to do in order to avoid such a thing, because if it's a large enough asteroid, that can be an extinction level event. Mm-hmm. Right. Even if it doesn't directly cause uh, enough damage to wipe out all life, it may indirectly cause it. So being able to detect these asteroids earlier gives us the opportunity to come up with a plan to move the asteroid out of the way, which is the most likely uh, uh, choice that we would have, the solution to that problem. Uh, less likely would be sending up Bruce Willis to blow it up with, like, a nuclear bomb, because that probably wouldn't do us any good. No. I mean, we could try. Well, you know. I would hate to lose Bruce Willis. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
I don't know. Have you seen the last two Die Hard movies? Oh, no. I mean, oh, I'm just this. saying. So, uh, although those, I can't really blame Bruce Willis for hey, those. Speaking of Bruce Willis, let's talk about biceps. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about bicep two in our last episode, and Lauren yeah. and I talked about bicep two quite a bit when okay. we did our update. Super brief refresher. What is bicep two, and this, what does it do? It looks for uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, specifically looking for polarization to give an indication for the presence of gravitational waves, which would in turn be a support for the inflation model of the Big Bang Theory. Lauren and I talked about how some of the findings that came out of a uh, an announcement that we heard back in March have uh, from si- the BICEP team right. have since been not disproven, but certainly called into question right. due to the amount of space dust, which might have been uh, mucking up the sensors. Right. So BICEP2 did all of its work from 2010 to 2012, I think. And, uh, bicep three would be the, the next phase. It would be the next, uh, cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, observatory, really. That one's at the South Pole. South Pole, yep. And, uh, it will have 2,560 detectors operating at a 100 gigahertz frequency. Um, and it'll, again, be studying the same thing that the bicep two, uh, array studied. And, the hope is that even if the the uh, information from Bicep 2 pans out to be less uh, spectacular than what we first believed, this will be able to look for the trace evidence of gravitational waves that might have been, you know, somewhat boosted by space <laughs> dust. But we'll be able to get more to the truth of the matter yeah. is the hope. Okay, I got another one. Okay. Perhaps to blow your mind with. Yeah. Why don't we put telescopes... On the moon. What, to look back at the Earth? Peeping Tom. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That that, that might happen. <laughs> Who knows? That could that could happen. No. So we've talked, uh, we talked in the last podcast a little bit in this one, I think, about some of the problems with having uh, observatories here on Earth. You've got to deal with moisture in the atmosphere yep. and that gets in the way, dust, light pollution, all kinds of things like yeah. that. If you're talking about an optical telescope, there's a so lot it's, of atmospheric it's distortion. Stuff you have to see through. Yeah. Uh, so you have to place your observatories very carefully. You want to look, put them like at a high altitude in a very dry place. Oh, uh, sure, sure. And even if you're talking about like like infrared telescopes, are kind of poor on Earth because yeah. the heat of the Earth is going to mess stuff up. Right. They have to be very sensitive. And the same thing is true if you're talking about radio telescopes. I mean, we have radio telescopes here on Earth, but. They get interference from sure. things on from Earth. From all of the radio waves. On yeah, Earth. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of. Trouble. I mean, we're we're using different frequencies, sure, but right, there's yeah. just. Uh, I think I mentioned in the last podcast that I ha- I had read something uh, a while ago while I was researching a blog post. I think it was for last year that if you were to stand on the surface of the moon and activate a cellular telephone, that would create a signal that radio astronomers on Earth would consider pretty strong. You would also have huh. terrible reception, and you would very quickly die. Well, I think you made the same joke the last time I said that. I made that. the die joke last time. Oh, okay. Because you were talking about you wouldn't necessarily die. I'm like, look, your smartphone right, is right, the right, capacity right, right. touchscreen. They've all I mean? heard it before, Jonathan. Yeah, but Lauren has This hasn't. is just for us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so these things have to be very sensitive. And what are you going to do? How do you how do you shield them from all of the radio frequency activity on the Earth? So, well, one idea is put a giant hunk of rock between the Earth that's generating all these radio signals and these radio telescopes. So you're thinking of uh, actually having all the the telescopes on the far side of the moon. Right. Which is not, by the way, 
the dark side of the moon, at least not all the time. No, no, light still hits it. Yes. Just not when we can see it. Right, because the moon... Because we don't see it. The moon is tidally locked with Earth. So that means the same face of the moon faces the Earth all the time, but all surfaces of the moon at some point or another get light from the sun. Right, confusing the fact that there is a permanent far side of the moon with the with the misconception that there's a permanent dark side of the moon is kind of like how a baby thinks if you cover its eyes it has disappeared. <laughs> that that's not true. <laughs> You're blowing my mind here, Joe. <laughs> Uh, no, it, I still it turns operate out under that <laughs> light can fall on things even if we don't see them. Yeah. So it, the the moon goes all the way around; it gets sun on both sides. Yes, but uh, but it does not. It does have a, a side that is permanently facing away from the Earth. And in fact, the the first time we saw that was when the Apollo mission. Uh, circled behind was in lunar orbit yeah. and they took pictures of the surface, which were really kind of creepy looking. A lot totally. of craters. But now the talk is about putting telescopes on that side. Like you were saying, Joe, it's completely uh, isolated from all the interference that would be generated on Earth. And you don't have to worry about the atmospheric distortion. Mm -hmm. So you could have different types of telescopes. And in fact, we've heard proposals for things like radio telescopes and optical telescopes on the surface of the moon on the far side. Which would be pretty cool. It's also a huge challenge. I mean, it's not easy for us to... Obviously, we haven't gone back to the moon with a manned mission since the 70s. So, uh, you know, it's it's not easy for us to do this necessarily. But uh, I think most of the um, proposals I saw suggested using rovers and uh, to... To deploy to and assemble. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'd be using robots, not actual people to set these things up. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. The, there are some issues. Uh, one of them is that if you're using a radio, uh, telescope, you have to power the telescope, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm. and so how do you generate power on the Solar? moon? Solar? Except then the sun is actually, uh, emitting radio waves. So the only time you would be able to use the telescope is when you're getting the most interference. Hmm. So what you would need oh, is some power I mean, form if you had some, source. if you had some kind of battery packs or something, yeah, then yeah. you could you could charge when it's not in use and use the telescope when it's. That's a possibility. There's that the other one that I remember reading was proposed. I think it was earlier this year. Was the idea that you could make this base near the south pole of the moon, and so mounting solar rays on the peaks of the south pole of the moon, they would constantly receive sunlight in all directions. Uh And then having something down in a crater, perhaps, where it wouldn't be. Yeah, just so slightly off to the other side where they're shielded from the sun is where you would have your telescope array. I've also heard of using nuclear pellets to power these, essentially the same way that uh, a lot of our Curiosity rover. Yeah. I think we should get a lot of nuclear power on the moon. Yeah. 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 I mean, just in general. I mean, even if we're not really (laughs) using it, I think that the more... Nuclear waste stations we can have if up there. Nothing, the if nothing else, it's going to provide the the fodder for numerous James Bond films down right, the road, which right. is really what we, we're all aiming for here at Forward Thinking. <laughs> okay, um, speaking of kind of James Bond-sounding concepts, this next one uh, sounds so much like science fiction to me, and it's a real thing that's happening, and I, and I adore it so much. So there's a concept for a lunar liquid mirror telescope. Um, and... We don't have one of these on the moon yet, but some do exist on Earth. Uh, and the idea is to use a, a reflective liquid like mercury in a rotating dish instead of a traditional, you know, solid aluminized glass mirror. Okay. And so the rotation of the dish, if it's if it's done, you know, very precisely, will place gravitational and inertial forces on the liquid that that 
lets it form this this uniform, perfect parabolic shape for reflection that's also self-correcting. So you wouldn't get any of that Hubble-esque trouble with mm-hmm. imperfect mirrors that cost billions to replace. Um, and like I said, there are a few on Earth. Um, the biggest is the Large Zenith Telescope, which is in British Columbia in, in Canada. Um, it's almost 20 feet across. Uh, so it's, wow. yeah, yeah, not, not too, not too shabby. And, um, putting one of these suckers on the moon would be pretty rad because, uh, you know, the, the moon, as we have said, right, doesn't have that pesky Earth atmosphere. Um, but it also would create a bunch of problems. For example, the temperature would make Mercury freeze, uh, thereby not making it a very useful liquid telescope. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and that also need to design a, a new dish support system that would, that would let it rotate smoothly. The large zenith, for example, uses an air cushion, which would not work without, you know, air. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. problematic. The lunar atmosphere is uh, sparse, to be fair. <laughs> they're they're talking they're talking about using um, like a superconductor. Uh, oh, so electromagnetic. Like, gotcha, kind gotcha. Of. So sort of the 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 quantum lock. Yeah, that we see. Mm-hmm. Okay. totally, totally. And the really cool thing, other than the fact that it's a mirror made of liquid, is that they're a lot cheaper than solid mirror telescopes. Um, you know, they, they can't be rotated the way that we do mirror, uh, you know, traditional mirrors sure. because the liquid would spill out. Gotcha. Um, which would also make it less useful. Um, but in the end, it really simplifies construction. Um, and a moon base would be really great for infrared telescopy because the base temperature is, is so low, you know, mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't run into the same kind of trouble that we do on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there hasn't been a whole lot of buzz about this kind of thing since around 2008, but at the time people were projecting possible launches out into the 2020s or so. So I think that we should all keep our ears out and see if anyone's been working on it. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, I wonder if the idea of having telescopes on the moon is one of those that might not be self-justifying, but if we ever were to create a colony at one of the poles of the moon, it would be sort of a logical extension of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there, and there's a lot of focus uh, to uh, to use the moon as sort of the proving grounds for uh, deeper, yeah, deeper explorations into space, particularly a manned mission to Mars. I mm-hmm. mean, NASA's current a uh, proposed approach involves asteroids and the moon as sort of a, a a stepping stone to get to Mars. Yeah. So it totally makes sense. And they're also talking about using the polar regions of the moon for this one. Yeah. Because that's, I, I think, basically just the best place to put this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So. But now, guys, I want to take a look at the future and ask a question about the limits of telescope technology. So you're going to look through a telescope at the future of telescopes to see the limit of telescopes. No, when you look through a telescope, you're looking at the past. That's true. The further back you look, the further back you look. Actually, I'm going to look backwards through a telescope at the future. Oh, Oh, hey. Now it all makes sense. All right. Okay. So I want to know what constrains the upper limit of telescope resolution, Mm -hmm. because we can see a certain distance out. I mean, telescopes obviously have better resolution than they used to, but... What if we want to see the kinds of things that are just absolutely beyond the limits of what we can see today? What if we want to be able to directly image the surface of planets in solar systems halfway across the galaxy? What prevents us from doing that? Do we just need really big lenses? Yeah, that's the question. Basically, I wanted to know, is it a hard limit imposed by physics? Is it just something that you just can't do that? 
or is it something about the nature of telescopes, a technological problem that we could actually achieve if we just build better and better telescopes, larger sizes, more precision engineering of the mirrors? And I actually passed this request along to some of our contacts at NASA and got a really exciting answer. That's awesome. So, yeah, the answer came back from Dr. John Mather, the 2006 Nobel Laureate in Physics and the Senior Project Scientist on the James Webb Space Telescope. And he he sent me back this answer. Uh, It said as follows. Telescopes are limited by the wave nature of light so that a point-like object appears to have an angular size of at least lambda divided by d, where lambda is the wavelength, meaning the wavelength of the light, and d is the diameter of the telescope. So that means if you want a sharper image and you can't change the wavelength of the light you're studying, you absolutely have to have a bigger telescope, even if you're building it in outer space. Uh, so I think what he's saying there is that we we can resolve greater images farther and farther out there, but there is a size restriction. I mean, the problem is you've got to build bigger and bigger mirror arrays. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked earlier in the podcast about how hard that is to do. Sure. And to get them into space, especially. Dr. Mathers says, but here on the ground, we have another problem. The atmosphere we love to breathe is always changing and making the images we see in the telescope dance around. With tremendous effort, we can build equipment to compensate for that. It's called adaptive optics, and it can work quite well, but we still need a bigger telescope if we want to get a sharper image. Hmm. Interesting. So really, the limit is size. Gotcha. Well, well, size and whatever light you're using to study. So Exactly if, right. If, so if you so there is a something. physics limit, yeah. but it's not a physics limit on the resolution that we can see ultimately. It's a f- physics limit that constrains what we can see based on the size of the telescope. Yeah, based on what we can build or have built so far, rather. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, that that's really cool. I'm glad that you were able to get that, that answer. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So big thanks to Dr. Mather and also thanks to Maggie Mazzetti at NASA for putting us in touch with him. That was a, a really interesting thing to learn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like we could probably say this every episode, but thanks, NASA. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I agree. We can say that. And now we will. One, two, three. Thanks, thanks NASA. NASA. Well, and thank you guys. You listeners out there who are listening to our show, I hope that you really enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can get in touch with us and let us know what topics you would like us to cover in the future about the future. Let us know on Twitter or Google Plus or Facebook. We have the handle FW Thinking over at Twitter and Google Plus. Just search FW Thinking at Facebook. It'll pop right up. And let us know what you think. We want to hear from you. And you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.